Like so many movies and TV shows before it, Wonder Woman has discovered the secret recipe for fun. Just set it in the 80s. That's Johnny Oleksinski of the New York Post, Wonder Woman 1984, roaring into theaters. That'll be our feature review here on Cinephile, the final one of 2020. Also, one of the best films of the year, Soul, debuts on Disney+. Plus. It's a fantastic movie. And I watched The Godfather Coda, the death of Michael Corleone. 30 years later, Francis Ford Coppola re-edits his film, which was a much maligned movie. I'll tell you if the edits worked or not. Um, we also have some news involving Wonder Woman's work at the box office. And, you know, I love my indie movies. Director of a film called Working Man. They sent me the screener. I thought it was terrific. And so Robert Jury, the director, is going to join us. Working Man starring Peter Garrity. And how about this for a Godfather tie-in? Talia Shire, the two-time Academy Award-nominated actress. Adrian, as well, of course, from Rocky. Plus, thanks to Mark Simon, he suggested this topic. I said, sure. Mount Rushmore political thrillers. I'm always game. As always, you can uh, go to... Um, Apple Podcasts, Cinephile is the name of our podcast, and you can please rate and review. I rank my movies at a four beliefs. Please rank us at a five stars. You can leave a comment as well. Uh, that's how we keep things rolling, so appreciate all the comments people are always giving. And as always, you can tweet us as well uh, at Adnan S. Virk or at Cinephile Pod. Hope you all had a uh, wonderful Christmas. Uh, thanks for all the feedback to last week. Um, I'm glad people uh, enjoyed me and Joe's selection as far as holiday movies is concerned. Particularly, Joe, I saw somebody tweet that they were so happy you mentioned Claws. So shout out to you for giving that movie some love. Oh, yeah. I, I think it might be a quintessential Christmas film that I'll rewatch every Christmas from here on out. So if people like it, definitely check it out come Christmas season next year. That's awesome. All right. Let's dive into the movies here, shall we? Wonder Woman 1984. Back in business, Diana Prince lives quietly among mortals in the vibrant, sleek 1980s, an era of excess driven by the, by the pursuit of having it all. Though she's coming to her full power, she maintains a low profile by curating ancient artifacts and only performing heroic acts incognito. But soon, Diana will have to muster all of her strength, wisdom, and courage as she finds herself squaring off against Maxwell Lord and the Cheetah, a villainess who possesses superhuman strength and agility. I'll set the stage for you. Christmas Day, took my boys to go see One Roman 1984. Thankfully, it's playing 15 minutes away from us in Jersey. Uh, that's right. For those of us who don't celebrate Christmas, Christmas is always movies and Chinese food. So, bam. Even in 2020, we were able to knock that off. Uh, I really wanted to go see News of the World, but of course, I'm not going to convince my kids to go see a Tom Hanks movie directed by Paul Greengrass. But hopefully, coming soon in Cinephile, I will sneak out to go watch that. Plus, Carrie Mulligan's in a movie called Promising Young Woman. So, God, for months and months, we haven't had any new movies opening in the theaters. And on Christmas Day, I looked up and I said, wow, there's three movies in theaters I cannot wait to see. And how about this sign for the movie business? And we'll talk more about Wonder Woman's numbers. We went for a 3 o'clock show. The 410 show, the 5 o'clock show sold out. I said, oh, my God. I, I was thrilled. I said, that's great news. Finally, people are going to the movies again. So I asked the guy at the front. I go, is that correct? This can't be right. And he said, well, yeah. And most people, obviously, you celebrate Christmas. You have you know breakfast in the morning. You go out for lunch, maybe, or maybe have lunch at home. And then evening winds down. Hey, let's go to the movies. Um, so they were actually sold out. Now, when I say sold out, that means 25% capacity. That means mask on, et cetera. But still, a good sign that people do love going to the movies and a real bah humbug to all those who say that uh, movies are anachronistic and a thing of the past. Uh, thankfully for me and my boys, we had our large popcorn. We had our slushies ready to go. Like I said, plenty of space. I kept the mask on the whole time. And we enjoyed Wonder Woman. And here is my biggest takeaway. How about this? I have been such a Grinch when it comes to blockbuster movies. I realized the tipping point was this. When Black Panther, which received universal critical acclaim, I think it got like 97% of Rotten Tomatoes. When audiences loved it, it made a billion dollars. And I gave it two and a half Maple Leafs and said, seriously, I, I can't do this anymore. That's when I realized it just wasn't for me. 
But this is what 2020 has wrought. In a year of which we're just desperate to go to the movies, in which I have openly professed to having blockbuster and superhero fatigue, I was reinvigorated. I was re-energized by being back in a movie theater watching a big, loud, bombastic, noisy, muddled, at times incoherent superhero film. That's right. Wonder Woman 1984, I probably enjoyed more than anything just because I was back in a movie theater. The first opening sequence, terrific action from Patty Jenkins. And by the way, the original Wonder Woman, I don't think I panned it, but again, I think I gave it a lukewarm review, which Ben Lyons gave me props on. He said, every feminist is going to kill you. I said, well, listen, I'm being honest. I gave the first one two and a half Maple Leafs. I did love the opening action sequence. And this one, again, has a great opening action sequence. And the star of the movie, I told my brother, is the Hans Zimmer score. He said, wow, you must have really hated the movie when you said the Hans Zimmer score is the best part of a superhero movie. I said, no, it's a credit to the greatness of Hans Zimmer. Are you kidding? If Stancic and Strudy are listening, they're going, oh, dude, Hans Zimmer, all day. Christopher Nolan movies? I mean, the first five minutes, I just heard the Christopher Nolan score, and I was in. So I was excited. I was in a, a good place mentally, physically, all the rest of it. Gal Gadot, as fetching as ever, you know, underplaying as Wonder Woman, very charming. Um, and I like the way that it's set in the 80s. I thought they made a lot of funny uh, allusions to the fact, particularly when Chris Pine, who comes back, which, let's face it, it was a stretch to get him back. It was, let's just get Chris Pine back and he's in the body of somebody else. But whatever, let's not get uh, logic in the way of these things. The scene where he's going through different wardrobes, like I'm just laughing at the parachute pants and the fanny pack. And Pine, by the way, gives a really good performance because so often you're used to the, the woman being the, the supporting role, the second banana, the female ingenue. Here he's the male ingenue. You know, the woman's a star. It's girl power. And he's the guy coming in. But I thought he did a really nice job at supplementing the story because obviously Godot's the star. And Kristen Wiig playing a villain. Joe and I have talked about before how much we like Kristen Wiig. Love her in Bridesmaids. She's really funny. Here giving, I wouldn't say a dramatic role. That would be a stretch because it is a superhero movie. But a more serious role. Um, maybe a more nuanced role that you might see, especially if you see her work in SNL. But, um, you know, she's the ugly duckling at the start. And then totally she becomes unflowered. And then you got Pedro Pascal, who is just chewing up scenery. A real character of the 80s. Essentially, he feels like he's Gordon Gecko, Michael Douglas from Wall Street. You know, give us all you got. What do you want? It's, it's like a Make-A-Wish Foundation. Tell me your wish. Basically, they come into possession of this rock, Kristen Wiig's character. Pascal steals it, and all of a sudden now he's, you know, Maxwell Lord. Now he's using that rock for, for bad things, shall we put it. Uh, I enjoyed the action sequences, particularly the opening and the ending. As I said, I thought the performances were good. I just thought the movie was too long. I know it's a constant complaint with me, but I just at times found it tedious and overlong and just muddled. And quite frankly, just bland at times. Like, you just go, enough. Can we just trim some of the fat? This is a two-and-a-half-hour superhero movie with 15 minutes of trailers. I mean, 2.45, trust me. I was thrilled to be in the theater, but I did feel the length after a while. But i got to be honest. I've seen mixed reviews, and I'm not saying it's a great film. I really am not. But I'm saying it's a decent blockbuster, and perhaps because, again, movies are so much about connecting with us on an emotional level, maybe because I was happy to be there with my kids, maybe because they were loving the experience, maybe just because I was back watching a big old blockbuster again, I'm giving it two and a half Maple Leafs. Wonder Woman 1984, which is also streaming on HBO Max, and yes, the kids want to see it again, so we have been watching some of it again at home. Uh, that's my review for this film as... Uh, like I said, the, the financially, it's actually doing better than I would have thought. Dana Stevens of Slate, Jenkins, and Godot have gone and done it. They've gotten me invested in the emotional well-being of a franchise superhero. And Manola Dargis, New York Times, former guest here on Cinephile. In the end, this movie never makes the case for why Wonder Woman is back in action beyond the obvious commercial imperatives. Joe, I know you saw it. Were you swept up in Patty Jenkins' latest? 
You know what? I, I liked it a lot. I thought it was a serviceable sequel. I thought it was better than uh, a lot of superhero movie sequels that are much more cash grabs. Like, I feel like this movie had more substance. I do agree with you that I think it was a little bit long. I think they could have cut out one or two scenes. Chris Pine's performance was great, and I love Pedro Pascal. I am totally nitpicking, though, because there's one part of the movie, just how they reintroduce his character into the movie it did not settle right with me. Now, I don't want to give too many spoilers away, but one spoiler. He kind of enters someone else's body, but they never make reference to what happened to that person's consciousness, his soul. Where did that other person go? Did he just go into the void? But Chris Pine is now occupying this person, and the whole time I'm watching the movie, I'm just like, what happened to this dude? They just took over his apartment, his body. They're making fun of his decor. You know what I mean? So maybe I'm nitpicking a little bit. But overall, I liked it, and I like Christian Wig in this role as well. It's not a nitpick, Joe. Like I said, it was, it was one of those, you cannot let logic get in the way. Like when you're first seeing the guy talking, you're like, okay. And then all of a sudden he turns into Chris Pond. You're like, oh, he's inhabited the form of another body. But I completely agree. Is this like is this like John Hamm in Mad Men? Remember Don Draper assumed the identity of a dead guy in the war? Like I'm like, it's very, very bizarre. I'm glad you bring it up. Don't worry. It's not enough of a spoiler if you haven't seen the movie yet. We all know Chris Pine's in the movie. So who cares how it ends up happening? But I am on board with your criticism of it. Um, we'll get to how Wonder Woman 1984 did in theaters it's good news for the movie theater business, which we could all use here in 2020. Next film up, Soul. I wish I could have seen this one in the theaters, but it is on Disney+. Plus. was absolutely a must-see to watch on Christmas, which we did Christmas night. Joe is a middle school band teacher whose life hasn't quite gone the way he expected. His true passion is jazz, and he's good. But when he travels to another realm to help someone find their passion, he soon discovers what it means to have soul. So going in again, with Wonder Woman 1984, I probably have low expectations, but I'm jazzed up to see a movie in the theater. With Soul, I have sky-high expectations, and not only because it's about jazz, but because it's Pixar, man. It's a Pixar original. They always bring it. Onward, I liked a lot this year. Earlier, I uh, came out, I believe, in March of this year, pre-pandemic. Um, and now you got, as soon as you see Pete Doctor, I go, come on. If you're an animation fan, you know Pete Doctor's name right away. Inside Out, obviously, is a film that Soul has many resemblances to. And uh, it's a brilliant work from Pete Doctor. I'm sure you've all seen it. So, Soul, I gave you these synopsis. Again, when it comes to these animated movies, it goes underrated just how good the voice cast is. Jamie Foxx is about as talented as anybody out there. This guy's a great musician. He's obviously an Academy Award-winning actor. He produces. He cares about what he does. He's funny. He can do stand-up. And here he does great things as the voice actor of Joe, this middle-aged guy with whom you, you easily fall for because, yeah, it's great that he's a band teacher, but his real love is being in a band. And he finally gets this great opportunity to be in a band. And Angela Bassett, by the way, terrific as uh, Dorothea. You know, she got the big brassy voice. And uh, she's playing in this local jazz club, and Joe finally gets his chance. Instead of his big night, his big break in his 40s, he falls down a manhole cover, and all of a sudden he's dead. Or is he? He's in The Great Beyond, which, again, I'm appreciating here on very many metaphysical levels here. He, as, as he says, and you see it in the trailer, he goes, is it heaven? No. Is it H-E-double hockey sticks? No. He's kind of in purgatory. And so... He's in the great beyond. He's got to get back to earth. He says, no, I'm not ready to go yet. You hear the other souls murmuring, oh, okay, that's happened before. Yeah, he's not ready to go. We've heard that story before, right? Oh, I'm not, I'm not dead yet. No, no, sorry. Time's up. It's not up to you. Um, and so he's desperately trying to get back to earth. And he enlists the help of another soul to try to get back to earth and, and to make good on his big night. They end up getting back. He conspires with one of the people there. I don't know if you call it people, one of the souls. 
and instead he ends up inhabiting the body of a cat. I will not go into further detail except to say Soul is not only a genuinely moving film and poignant, but also one of the strangest movies I've seen this year. And that's why I found it delightful. Because the thing about Pixar is this. They not only make animated movies for kids, but they also make animated movies for adults. And it's smart and it's charming, but it's also just strange. Like at times, I just appreciate how delightfully absurd this movie gets. Like I, I kept imagining, imagine if Charlie Kaufman wrote a Pixar movie. Like that would be incredible. You know, I talked about Ant Kind earlier this year, 700-page book from Charlie Kaufman, uh, wrote, uh, directed, I'm thinking of ending things, and adapted that screenplay uh, from Ian Reid, who we spoke to earlier in Cinephile. Like imagine Kaufman with this kind of material, he would just go wild. I'd love to see it one day. But anyways, uh, I don't want to give away too much of the story, but as I said, it hits all the right notes, particularly with Pixar. They are so good with the third act, right? They, they understand how to hit the ground running. It's a maybe 95-minute movie. Second act never really drags. Lots of frenetic action. You've got very animated characters, bright, colorful, etc. And then the third act just always hits you in the heart, man. Like they just, they just know how to just land the plane and do so in a very life-affirming manner. I was worried that it might be a little too intense, but thankfully it was not too intense for at least my kids or for me, quite frankly. I didn't want to start blubbering on the couch. Tina Fey also does good uh, voice work. Graham Norton is in the film as well. Uh, Felicia Rashad from The Cosby Show. She's excellent as Liba. Again, wish I could have seen it in the movie theater, but soul is good for the soul. And the best part of it for me... Again, it feels like this is a musically-themed cinephile. I raved about Hans Zimmer. Well, how about the jazz music in this? Jean Baptiste, uh, my buddy Lemusin, comes from a, a jazz family. Of course, he's Colbert's guy. Uh, he's from New Orleans. Fantastic jazz compositions. Like, whenever the music's going... Uh, by the way, Joe is a pianist, but when you see him up there with the, the trombonist and the sax and all the rest of it, I mean, it, it is just beautiful music. Like I said, it is soulful. It is good for the soul. I highly recommend Soul. Three and a half Maple Leafs. It's available on Disney+. Plus. It's going to be in my top 10 movies of the year, and it's so far my favorite animated film of the year. Joe. And, and I've wrestled with this all weekend. I've thought about it. I've talked to people about it. This, I think, is the best Pixar movie ever made. That's how much I liked it. I think it is the best Pixar movie better ever made. Better than Toy Story series, better than Inside Out, better than A Bug's Life, what you name it, Monsters, Inc. This was my favorite movie. I don't know if it just lined up with my sensibilities because I like jazz music. I grew up playing the drums. Uh, I live in New York. This, I, I went into it completely blind. I didn't read any synopsis. I didn't watch any trailer. So I just thought it was going to be a cute movie about you know a jazz musician in new york and then it just took the turn he goes into the great beyond the opening title sequence comes up i liked it so much but i think the thing that might be underrated about it too is it really i think captures new york city how crowded it is the vibe the the vibrance of it i know it's a children's movie but it really i think it, it just just captured that feeling of also being in New York. So to me, I'm watching him thinking, this is also just a good New York movie, aside from a great, great Beyond movie. I give it four out of four Maple Leafs. I cannot recommend this enough. I was bugging my brother who was in Michigan this weekend to watch it, to push everyone to watch it. They didn't do it, but Adnan, I cannot express how much I like this movie. Uh, I love it. I, I was scared, Joe. When you said I've wrestled with it, I thought you were going to say, I think this movie's overrated and I didn't like it. And I was like, oh my God. Because my wife actually wasn't crazy about it. She said, oh, I thought it was all right. I go, what do you mean? Like, how, how, What's all right with this movie? This is a great film. So I'm thrilled that you enjoyed it as much as I did. I was scared. I liked the preamble. And it's an excellent point you make about New York. A.O. Scott from the New York Times, like other great New York movies, it invites you to identify particular intersections and storefronts to compare its imagined geography with the city of your 
your own experience. You know, Joe's from uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul. I'm from Toronto. Both of us, though, make our living in and around the city. And if you love New York, I think you're totally right, Joe. This is the movie you can appreciate because it really captures uh, the soul of the city. Joe Morgenstern of the Wall Street Journal. The film juggles interesting ideas, dramatizing them with great verve and deep feeling. And David Fear of Rolling Stone. There are many elaborate lessons on life and how to live in soul, though its best may ironically be its simplest. Look, listen, learn, enjoy. Like I said, it is a life-affirming experience. Highly recommend Soul. One more film to talk about, and it's a film that came out 30 years ago. The Godfather Coda, The Death of Michael Corleone. That's right, Godfather 3, re-edited by Francis Ford Coppola. As Michael Corleone, Al Pacino ages, he finds that being the head of the Corleone crime family isn't getting any easier. He wants his family out of the mafia, but the mob kingpin Eli Wallach isn't eager to let one of the most powerful and wealthy families go legit. Making matters even worse is Michael's nephew, Vincent, Andy Garcia. Not only does Vincent want a piece of the Corleone family's criminal empire, but he also wants Michael's daughter, Mary, Sofia Coppola. So here's the thing. I saw it when I was 13 years old. I was born in, uh, yeah, I was born in 78. It came out in 90. I think I saw it the next year on uh, video because it came out Christmas in 1990. And I remember thinking, okay, it's not nearly as good as the first two, but it's not bad. Like, it's better than you think. I love the echoes to King Lear. And uh, I thought Pacino was amazing in the movie. Really, like, you know, this, this aging patriarch desperate for redemption and grappling with sin and all its ramifications. I loved Andy Garcia's performance as the hothead. The film got nominated for seven Academy Awards, including Best Picture. Garcia was up for Best Supporting Actor. I love Montaigne. I said, you know what? Okay, it's not the first two, but it's not as bad as you think. Well, how about this? They say you get nicer with old age. That's not the case for me. I rewatched The Godfather Coda. This is part three now, re-edited. And how about this? It is better, clearly better, the way that Coppola has touched it up. He's edited it swifter. It's quicker. It's no longer a bloated 310. I think it's like two hours and 40 minutes. The opening is a little better. I like how he opens it. It's, it's not a new scene, but he re, reorders it, restructures it, which I agree with. The ending is now open-ended. Spoiler alert, Michael does not fall over and die. It simply ends with a close-up of him and a postscript which reads that Sicilians never forget. So immediately you start thinking, wait, Godfather 4, does Francis have this one in the works? So I like the way he changed it up. But it's not a good movie. <laughs> when I watch this movie again, I go, oh, my God. Like this. Now I understand 30 years later why people were so incensed after seeing the first two Godfathers. This movie is a mediocre movie. It is a far cry from the first two Godfathers. It, it, is, a, it is a serviceable mafia movie, which is obviously a genre which I adore. So it has elements and themes that I like. But there's a lot of flaws with this. Beginning with first and foremost, the fact he didn't re-edit Sofia Coppola out of the movie. She's awful, okay? The backstory is this. They all wanted money. That's why they did this. Paramount wanted money. Francis Ford Coppola was in deep financial stress with American Zoetropus Production Company. Pacino was like, hey, I'll take some money too. Al did not act from 85 to 89. Four years because Revolution was so poorly received, a film in which he... Uh, I mean, listen, it's an awful movie. I love the guy, but it's an awful movie. It came out in 1985. It's produced by Urban Winkler, by the way, for previous guest here in Cinephile. He takes a four-year sabbatical. He comes roaring back with Sea of Love, which is a good movie, 1989. And then, as he himself has said in interviews, well, I needed the money. Like, I, I took four years off. I just did whatever I wanted, did some plays, whatever. And then I was like, okay, I need some money. I went back to work. So Al wants some money, and Robert Duvall wanted some money. And so Francis is getting paid. Pacino's getting $5 million. Duvall goes, if Pacino's getting five, I want five. And says he was willing to go with four. The studio said, no. Paramount said, we'll give you one and a half. Duvall goes, you give me one and a half, you can stick it. 
And so the movie really, really misses Robert Duvall. I was just talking with my friend Moses Messina and we'll be network the other day. I go, dude, how could you not pony up and get Duvall? You need Tom Hagen in the movie. The best parts of Godfather 3, Godfather Coda, are when the band is back together again. Talia Shire, who has some good moments in 1 and 2, is superb in part 3 because... Quite frankly, the rest of them are no longer there. There's no James Caan. There's no Marlon Brando. There's no uh, uh, Fredo, obviously, uh, John Cazale. So Talia Shire gets a little more screen time, and she's up for the task, although she does give one terribly melodramatic line read where she says, Michael, now they'll fear you. And I feel like it's an ad lib. It probably is. But Pacino says, maybe they should fear you, which is a great line. It undercuts the fact that she's overacting in that scene. But... You need to have frickin' Tom Hagen in the movie. Instead, you have his kid. That's no good. You have George Hamilton playing a lawyer, B.J. Harrison. Like, how is George Hamilton in Godfather 3? This makes no sense. I mean, the entire cast, when I watched it, I said, this is such a far cry from Godfather 1 with the talent assembled of Brando, Pacino, Khan, Shire, Cazal, etc. Godfather 2. Oh, my goodness. You got Lee Strasberg, the legendary acting teacher, is Hyman Roth. Uh, in addition to many other actors, Michael V. Gazzo is tremendous. I don't know no Michael Corleone. And Godfather 3, when I give you this cast, aside from Al Pacino and Diane Keaton and Talia Shire, who are the DNA of the first two, none of these actors are great. George Hamilton, Sofia Coppola's wretched, Bridget Fonda. I mean, she's pretty, but what the hell is Bridget Fonda doing this movie for? Now, Montaigne, I said to you as a kid I loved, I still love him in the movie. He's great. Quite frankly, I needed more of Joe Montaigne in the movie. Joey Zaza. I mean, when Andy Garcia bites his ear, that scene I loved... And I still like it, but again, Garcia's overacting. They make it so obvious that he is a hothead like his son. Even Pacino says, oh, just like his father. Like, you don't need to hit the audience over the head. I know it's been 16 years at that point between Godfather 2 and Godfather 3, but it's so on the nose what they're trying to do with it. Uh, And Garcia, I got to be honest, I really like Andy Garcia. I do. But he's overacting too many times. When Mary gets killed... It's the best scene of the movie for Pacino. He lets out this gigantic scream, and Coppola very smartly has no audio. Then the audio comes in, you hear the big wail. It's, it's the best moment of Godfather 3. Diane Keaton's crying, Ty Shire, and Andy Garcia goes, No, Mary! I'm like, it is, it is a terrible bit of acting by Andy Garcia. And Eli Wallach, again, you need to have a great villain. There's no great villains in this movie. Montaigne's a villain, he's only in it for like an hour. Eli Wallach is Don Altobello. He's like this frail old mafia guy. He's, he is not Hyman Roth. He's not Salazzo in Godfather 1. And again, Sofia Coppola. Dude, if you're going to remake the movie, just get her out of the movie. Here's the story. Winona Ryder was going to play the role. Winona Ryder drops out. Allegedly pregnant. May have been some other malfeasance. Don't want to get into that. You can go ahead and Google it if you like. So Francis says, you know what? I'll just put my daughter in the movie. One of the worst decisions ever in movie history. It's been rightfully uh, slammed by anybody who cares about film. She's awful. I understand she's a terrific director. That's great news. Go watch On the Rocks. You can go watch Lost in Translation. She's not a good actress. She immeasurably hurts the movie with her line readings. She sounds like a valley girl. Guess who my father is? He's Italian. I mean, the scene of her and Andy Garcia making dough together. And then Garcia says, hold me. That, I, I don't think I've laughed harder in 2020. That's one of the most unintentionally funny things I saw all year. I mean, it's so bad. It was good in that moment. Also, incredibly hairy chest on Andy Garcia. Listen, I'm a hairy guy. We get that. But he looks like he's wearing a sweater in that first scene. Like Maybe he should have just trimmed up for the movie. Listen, I'm going to give it two Maple Leafs. Joe, I, I remember, again, I thought everyone was giving it a hard time. I remember I had a little picture of it in my locker when I was in high school because I loved the tagline to the movie, which was, All the power on earth can't change destiny. Great tagline. Well, all the re-edits from Francis Ford Coppola cannot save Godfather 3. 
You do not waste need to waste your time of watching this again, Joe. It is not nearly as good as the first two, which I guess everyone knew 30 years ago, and now I officially am convinced of. Wow. I mean, just hearing you talk about Robert Duvall, and it's just another instance of studio politics getting in the way of art. You know, it's, it's happened so many times before, but I didn't know that that was the reason why he wasn't in the movie. Um, Diane Keaton came out after the re-edit, and she said she really liked this, that... Uh, Francis Ford Coppola structured the first and the third act much better, but she had something to say about uh, Sofia Coppola. She said, she's what a daughter would be like if you had this guy as your dad, the head of a criminal organization. She was not so sure of herself and kind of quiet, kind of haunted. I thought she was fantastic. This is after the recut. It sounds like she she's just hyping up the movie in this interview, but it made me think of uh, Anna Paquin's performance in The Irishman. And her performance being the the, the daughter of Hoff, Robert De Niro's character, sorry, and she kind of got criticized because her character was really quiet and haunted and subdued. But I thought it really worked for the movie, and I thought it was unfair criticism. Do you think if Sofia Coppola's character was more structured in that way, that that would work in The Godfather Three? That's a great point, Joe. I do agree. Anna Paquin, they took a lot of heat. Oh, how come this feminine character wasn't given more substance? But I agree with you. I think she did have substance. I think that Anna Paquin's a credit to her, an Academy Award-winning actress, that she was able to convey so much without dialogue, just with looks and stares and, and being the smartest person in the room, knowing what her father is all about. Yeah, I definitely think less is more would have helped. I mean, I've heard this contrary take that Diane Keaton's referring to that, you know, Sophia Coppola's playing it. She sounds like a valley girl. And if you grew up with a very rich father, maybe you'd have this privileged household. You would not be this, you know, smooth Italian American. But I, I think it's a, an argument that I do not agree with. It does not hold water. I think it's just excuse making. I think it's very obvious to anybody. If you watch that movie, even with clean eyes, there is someone listening right now to Cinefile going, oh, I've never seen it before. Go watch it right now. Watch the re-edit. Watch the original one. And, and trust me, you are going to see that this is not a good movie and that she is inexcusably a really harmful part of the film. Uh, Claudia Puig of Film Week, I almost don't see a point for Godfather Part 3. You've ended the story so beautifully with Godfather Part 2. Why would you go back and continue it? The story doesn't come together like it did for the original, but I will say he's improved it. I would agree with that. Uh, Richard Brody of The New Yorker, the film's tautly controlled turbulence guides the eye to salient details. Its clarified lines of dramatic tension calmly burst into images of an explosive yet nearly static intensity. So that's a positive review. And David Ehrlich of IndieWire, it's often gripping, sometimes mad masterful and almost never betrays its history as the work of a wayward giant scrambling back toward respectability after a long decade lost in the wilderness. Again, I like the themes. Okay, I like that old King Lear aspect. And he's trying to go legitimate, trying to go straight. I just wish that there was more, uh, more meat on the bone to really savor it. So that's my thoughts when it comes to Francis Ford Coppola, improved but still not great. Coming up next, some entertainment news plus director Bob Jury and the new film Working Man. An official message from Medicare. A new law is helping me save more money on prescription drug costs. Maybe you can save too. With Medicare's Extra Help program, my premium is zero and my out-of-pocket costs are low. Who should apply? Single people making less than $23,000 a year or married couples who make less than $31,000 a year. Even if you don't think you qualify, it pays to find out. Go to ssa.gov slash extra help. Paid for by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Entertainment news where we get to our guest. Wonder Woman 1984, our featured review, 
Well, this is great news in the movie theaters. Okay, now this is a real test now for Warner Brothers. We know that uh, Christopher Nolan is not on board with this. They debuted the movie the same day it's on HBO Max and in select movie theaters. Available to subscribers, no extra charge. Soul was on Disney+. Plus. We know that as well. Well, $16.7 million from 2,100 North American theaters. Now, that is half of the domestic footprint that would normally greet a blockbuster of its size. You're normally looking at a lot more money. But, but, think about it. Only 35% of U.S. cinemas are open at limited capacity, okay? Big cities like New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Chicago, Philadelphia closed due to the global health crisis, I believe if Joe was still in the city, he could not go see this movie in New York City. Think about that. Uh, in Toronto, I, I've been talking to friends. They cannot go to the movies. It is completely closed. So yeah, Wonder Woman grossed more than $100 million in its first weekend of release. That was 4,100 screens. This is half that size, and the theaters are only at 25% capacity. So I think $16.7 million is terrific news, considering how bad Tenet did, which was... Listen, uh, I like to support Christopher Nolan, but there's no denying the fact that movie flopped domestically. This is good news. Wonder Woman 1984's Christmas showing gave Warner Brothers a confidence to fast-track a third entry, which is now in the works with Gal Gadot and director Patty Jenkins. Now, a lot of people were watching for private watch parties. This was something I did notice in the theater as well. Over the weekend, more than 10,000 private rentals were sold, allowed customers to rent out a screaming room at AMC. So private watch parties cost around 100 bucks, and you could get between 10 and 20 people. How smart is that? Hey, 100 bucks. We'll get dad and mom and grandpa and grandma and our cousins and our brothers and sisters, and let's just all go to the movies. So I think a lot of people took advantage of that. I give props to AMC for coming up with that concept. I mean, Joe, I don't, I don't know how big your family is. Obviously, you got your brothers and stuff, but if you had a private watch party, maybe you'd be more inclined for all of you to go see the movies together. Yeah, I think I would. And I, I think that, you know, it's something that, uh, especially right now for families that do want to see each other and remain socially distant and, you know, follow protocols, this is a good option to hang out in a big space by yourself and watch a movie. Yeah, no doubt about it. So, um, listen, that's great news for the movie theaters. And as always, I not only appreciate blockbusters, but I appreciate smaller films as well. Speaking of a small movie, which is getting some good buzz, it's called Working Man. The director, Bob Jury, is coming up after the break, plus the Mount Rushmore of political thrillers. A pleasure to welcome in Robert Jury. His film is called Working Man. It is streaming on Amazon Prime VOD. Robert is a written feature film screenplay for 20th Century Fox and HBO Films, a past winner of the ABC slash Disney Writers Fellowship. And Working Man is just a terrific movie. It's one of these movies, you know, if you love independent movies like I do, if you love character actors, if you love the, the unsung, so to speak, you're going to love Working Man. And that's why it's such a pleasure to bring in Robert Jury right now to Cinephile. Bob, thanks so much for the time today. Thanks for having me on. No, this is a real pleasure. So Peter Garrity is the star of the movie, and this is what I love, because I said, you know what? All these movies, you normally got everyone looking like Brad Pitt and Leo DiCaprio. With all the respect to Peter Garrity, I'm sure he's a handsome man, and when you see him on set, but he, he is not your conventional leading man. But I thought he was terrific in this movie. He's one of these actors, Bob. You've seen him in so many different roles. You go, okay, I know that face. I've seen him in HBO shows. I've seen him in so-called supporting roles. But to see him finally get a lead role like this, I thought he was terrific. To give people a little bit of background as to what exactly Working Man is all about, there's a factory and a 
you know, it looks like a small town. It closes. Garrity's one of these guys that works in the assembly line, is kind of at a loss as what to do. So he still keeps going to the factory. He sneaks in. Uh, he has some help from Billy Brown, one of the supporting actors in the movie. And he just keeps doing his job. And he's got that kind of dogged resilience about him that I just love. He, he's been in Paul Blart, Mall Cop, Flight, Public Enemies, Charlie Wilson's War. And here you give him a lead role. Tell me first and foremost why you cast Peter Garrity in this role. Well, he said yes, right? <laughs> um, no, it's it, it, uh, we were really fortunate to get Peter. This was it was kind of a tough role to cast, really. I mean, we're we were an independent film; we didn't have a huge budget. Um, and to be perfectly honest, when I wrote the script over a decade ago, I hadn't even really envisioned uh, any particular actor to play the part. I mean, it's just, it's kind of a strange oddball character. And, um, you know, as we just started looking through the possibilities of, of who could even play this part, who could look this part, who would be believable. Um, Peter just kind of rose to the top of the list. He, he, as you mentioned, he, he's had an amazing storied career. He started off, you know, on Broadway, I think he acted in maybe the first um, Othello on Broadway with James Earl Jones and um, came up with um, uh, other actors out of Trinity Rep in, in Providence, Rhode Island, and eventually got into TV and film and and has, has acted across from everybody you can imagine. Tom Hanks, then directed by Spielberg, you name it. And he was just this journeyman actor who... I always had the sense that whoever played this part would probably come from the theater and be somebody who had this, this long career behind them. And that's exactly who Peter is. And, and uh, it, we're, we're fortunate to, that, it, that he accepted our offer. And I, I don't know. I, I think he just did a beautiful job as our working man. Yeah, I thought he was so authentic in the role. You know, you've seen guys like this wherever you are, from whatever walk of life you've been fairly nondescript guy, literally has a lunch pail to go to work, literally eats the same bologna sandwich, uh, fairly taciturn, doesn't say a whole lot to his wife, just goes in and gets a job done. Literally, they close the factory, and he's like, no, I'm still going to go out, still going to get my job done. Like you said, it took you over a decade to, to write it, just to get this film made, and you know, one of the first rules, as you know, of course, is write what you know. So I'm watching the story saying, okay, Robert Jury must have some sort of affinity with factory towns, small towns, etc., was this subject personal to you? Did you grow up around factory towns in the Rust Belt? Did you see guys like this working man who you said, you know what, I can bring that authenticity to the screen? Yes, as, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I, I grew up outside factory cities, small towns along the Mississippi River in the Midwest. So, you know, the people that you see represented in, in the movie are a lot like, you know, friends, family members that I knew growing, growing up. So... Um, extremely personal, and I mean, there's also an element of, of uh, mental health and so forth. All, all these things were sort of drawn from family and personal experiences, and um, I think that, that as you said, it, it, it feeds into the authenticity and what, you know, people can smell out if something's genuine or not. And um, we, we really took a lot of care in, in finding just the right places, the locations we shot in and around Chicago for just 20 days. Um, 
Our last day we shot down in the Joliet, Illinois area, just south of Chicago, which is a heavy industry town. And that's where you see a lot of those beautiful exteriors with the, with the drawbridges in our films and grain barges and those things that just, I mean, you can't, you can't build a set and, and convey that imagery. It, it has to really exist in real life. A hundred percent. And that I think is, again, what gives it that, you know, verisimilitude. That's what really makes Working Man feel special for me because I said, okay, I did not grow up in the Rust Belt. Yet I feel like it's a totally immersive film. It does not take a misstep. Again, back to the writing process. I mean, this took you a decade to get it made. So, I mean, it's, it's a film that I think you always knew. Listen, this is not going to be some big studio film. This has to be an independent movie. But I did not realize one of your mentors is Meg LeFauve. I hope I'm pronouncing the name right. Oscar nominee for co-writing right. Inside Out. Yeah. Yeah. No, Meg was uh, really instrumental in, in challenging me and, and helping me kind of steer this script from its its original draft. I... I knew this wasn't going to be a studio movie, and I submitted it to the Film Independent Talent Labs in Los Angeles. They're the same folks that sponsor the the Independent Spirit Awards, and um, as part of the screenwriting lab that I was a part of and selected to to uh, you know participate in, uh, Meg was my mentor. She was a she, this was before she had even written Inside Out for Pixar, but it was pretty clear to me when. I was with Meg and and the other fellows in the program that that she was um, she she certainly knew her business and she liked the story enough that she introduced uh, the script to a man named Clark Peterson, a producer who would become my producing partner for the next ten years on this project. We tried a lot of different avenues to get the movie made, a lot of. Uh, close but no cigar moments, and then we finally got financing um, in 2018. And we shot the movie, as I said, in Chicago, and and did the film festival circuit a year ago before COVID, and then released this year um, officially, um, which we had planned to be theatrical, but have moved since to on demand since that's the world we're living in now. What was the budget, Bob? I know you said you shot 20 Days Chicago and Joliet, but shoestring budget, I'm guessing. What was the budget? Yeah, it was under a million, safely. I can tell you that much. Um, so with that kind of budget and those few of days to do what we did, uh, you know, your actors have to kind of come in ready to go. There isn't much in the way of rehearsal time. You, I, of course, would talk to them on set and we'd talk on the phone prior to their arrival, but you don't have a lot of the same luxuries with time and money that you would on a, on a typical Hollywood movie. So um, we just kind of had to hit the ground running. No question. Uh, I talked with Peter Garrity. Billy Brown's terrific in the movie as well. He's got a lot of presence. But how about Talia Shire? I just got the uh, Godfather Coda, the death of Michael Corleone. I'm sure you know Francis Ford Coppola. Yes. Recut, he re-edited Godfather 3 30 years later. So I, I can't wait to see what he redid with Godfather 3. But the first thing when I got the screener in the mail, I said to my wife, oh, Talia Shire's in this movie. Like it's, I'm like, wait, you got Talia Shire? Like that, that to me, I'm like, how did you get her? That That's a screen legend, a former Academy Award nominee, of course. And she gives the role, and I thought, some real heft. Because Garrity is a guy, again, as I mentioned, his character is taciturn and stubborn and this immovable rock. And the scene where she 
she confronts, I don't want to give away too much, but the scene where she confronts him, you got to have an actress who can play ball. You know, to use the sports analogy, it's like tennis. She's got to be able to hit the ball back across the net the way that he's serving it to her. And I thought she was magnificent. Tell me about Talia. Yeah, no, that was, again, good fortune in that um, Clark Peterson, who was my producing partner, had worked with Talia on a couple of other films in the past. And um, I, I recall that, you know, he sent the script to Talia on a Friday, and then on Monday, she said yes. And that, I mean, that just really doesn't happen. It, it just, I think we just happened to reach out to her at the right time and for only reasons that she could explain to you, the, the material really connected with her, but it was, you know, I can't tell you how excited I was to have Talia as part of the, the film. I grew up watching, of course, the Godfather films and Rocky. Um, so this, to, to have her involved. And as you said, um, you needed someone that would bring that gravitas right to the part and, and be able to go toe for toe uh, with Peter um, and, and be believable with Peter as, as a married couple. And, and I'll tell you from the, the moment that Talia arrived in Chicago and Billy Brown, as far as that's concerned, our third lead, the three of those people just really formed a, a strong connection and a quick one that we, that that was necessary to to make those characters believable and and uh, and true. The other part of it is this: I I, uh, I was thinking about just this concept, right? The fact that you know his job is so important to him, and as the movie rediscovers later on, that he's you know he's he's burying his past, and obviously he's trying to overcome his personal demons, etc. But but the job, in so many ways, is his identity. Like this is this is his foundation. I don't know if you've ever seen. There's a French movie called Time Out, which was brilliant. Your movie reminded me of that movie. It's about a guy who loses his job and then yet keeps pretending he's going to work. Now, in the case of Working Man. You know, Garrity's still going to the factory with Billy Brown, but this French movie, the guy just keeps going to work, but he's wearing a suit, he leaves his wife, and he just, you know, goes to the park, walks around, goes shopping. Like he just, He's not actually going anywhere, but he just cannot bear the truth of the fact that he's lost his job. Not sure if you've seen that movie or any other films like that that deal with that subject matter of how a person's identity is so inextricably tied to their working life. Yeah, I, I don't know that I had any sort of influence in that respect with the film, uh, as far as the, you know, that, that sense of purpose and, and why people need the, uh, the working life to, to, um, sustain themselves and so forth, or in, in our characters, our working man characters case, uh, avoid maybe some, some issues in his life. But, you know, one of the movies that I think early on that, that I really loved uh, it was a movie that David Lynch did, I want to say, in the earlier mid-90s. It was a, a Disney story. film. It was a G-rated, a straight story. Yeah, Actually, Richard Farnsworth. A lot of people know that. Totally. Totally. I, I love that movie. I love the pace of it. And again, I love that they used um, a little-known actor or a little, you know, character actor like Richard was, who was great in The Natural and other movies. Um, but it the thing that I was so impressed what Lynch did in that film was he really made you as an audience member um, be patient. I remember the first few moments of watching if, if you know, you're, 
folks don't remember the straight story. It's about a man who rides a lawnmower across my home state of Iowa and, and uh, with the purpose of going to Wisconsin to visit his brother. And it's about the journey along the way. But it, it, you, you really are forced as an audience member to um, buy into that patience. And he makes you sit and watch this this man riding this this lawnmower. And it sounds boring, but it's you know if you've seen it, it's a wonderful film, wonderful story. And I, I guess in the back of my head, I'd always hoped maybe to do something with that sort of patience, and and um, <laughs> hopefully with the same result, and that people will hang around long enough to see what happens, right? No, I, I love that you brought that film, because you're right. In many ways, I can see how it's resonant. You know, it's about a small character, so to speak, you would think, but it, it actually has very big themes and a real sense of universality to it. Um, I know you're also apparently right. working on the notes here, a feature film project with musician, actor, and director M. Sean Crahan, the founding member of the metal band Slipknot. What are you guys cooking up together? Yeah, well, this is, again, this is a, another personal story. Uh, I met Sean through a um, a mutual friend, and he <laughs> he said, you know, I've got some very strange, a, a collection of about 30 to 40 stories from my childhood that I would love to see made into some sort of script or, or written into a script or a film. And I was fairly hesitant initially. I'm not a, you know, a death metal fan. <laughs> <laughs> fan of myself, or you know, and, and to be perfectly honest, didn't really know Slipknot's music all that well. Um, but I sat down with Sean, and and he told me these stories, and I suddenly started to realize how these these, in many ways, very dysfunctional stories from his childhood could be um, braided into one one narrative film. So I'm really hopeful that we're able to get it done. I think it could be a, a, a powerful story and uh, very different from Working Man. But um, yeah, nonetheless, it's, uh, again, built on, on very personal, um, character-driven uh, story. I love that you're still able to make those kinds of movies. You know, in this kind of day and age, you feel like either you make a movie for $2 million or $200 million. The $200 million movies are the ones about, you know, Marvel superheroes and such, and you're making these small, tiny, independent movies that you're real labor of love. Speaking of labor of love, Fiesta Bowl, January 2nd, 4 o'clock Eastern, Iowa State, number 10 ranked. They're taking on the Oregon Ducks. How fired up are you for the Fiesta Bowl, Bob? Yes. I'm I'm incredibly fired up about that, right? I I mentioned to you before the, our call that uh, I've been a long-suffering Iowa State fan all my life. Um, they narrowly missed uh, winning the Big Twelve championship, so they finally get into a New York uh, New Year's Day Six Bowl. Um, it's that's very exciting for the program. So I'm I'm hopeful the Cyclones can can pull out the victory. Well, you definitely pulled off a victory by making Working Man. I think it's a beautiful film. Like I said, it's a kind of movie that I, I really love. It reminds me of the movies I loved in the 90s, you know, these small, independent movies, character-driven, beautifully told, uh, genuine, sweet without being sentimental, and uh, cast members that deserve leading roles, like Peter Garrity. So check out Working Man. It is streaming on Amazon Prime, VOD, or wherever you get your boobies. 
Thankfully, as a member of the BFC, I was able to receive a screener. But I hope everyone checks out this movie. And Bob, do you have a, any social media channels? You, you go ahead, pump up Twitter, Instagram, whatever you like. Anything you can get the word out, we'd appreciate it. Yeah, sure. No, I, I appreciate you giving me the opportunity. It's it's just workingmanmovie.com. You can find out everything you, you want and need. And um, we're also, you know, on all the, the social media handles as well. But it's Working Man Movie. So I really appreciate that. Awesome. Workingmanmovie.com. People, go see it. And uh, like I said, it's a terrific movie and a rewarding experience. Uh, thanks so much for the time, Bob. Happy holidays. And hopefully we'll talk again soon. Thank you. Same to you. Mount Rushmore. All right, Mark Simon suggested Mount Rushmore political thrillers, and I'm so lazy and open to suggestions. I said, okay, sure. So we have a pretty good list here. I haven't gone through the list myself, but as Joe just clarified to me, we did previously do, what did we do, Joe? Mount Rushmore of journalism movies. Journalism movies. movies. Yeah, Yeah. okay. So there's definitely something along those lines that we've done before. But um, I want you to go first because I just haven't prepped yet. Go ahead, Mount Rushmore political thrillers. All right, well, I've talked about this movie before uh, how much I liked it on on Cinephile. It's one of my favorite political thrillers of all time, and I did throw it on my journalism list as well, but that's all The President's Men, 1976. Fantastic. That crane shot when they're in the the library is just fantastic. I'm also going to go with JFK, Oliver Stone. Kevin Costner's performance in that is incredible. We've talked about it during the Oliver Stone, Mount Rushmore, uh, and how he's able to blend fact and fiction in that movie just so well. Um, I'm also going to go with, I'm going to go with Malcolm X, Spike Lee, 1992, intense, intense movie, Denzel Washington. I don't know how he didn't win best actor that year. I looked it up though. I know we did total recall, but he did lose to Pacino that year for scent of a woman, his performance in scent of a woman. And then my last one is one of my favorite movies of all time. It was my favorite movie in college, Um, And that's 1962, The Manchurian Candidate, Frank Sinatra, fantastic Cold War era movie, early 60s, much better than the 2004 remake with Denzel Washington. Cannot recommend it enough. So my four are All the President's Men, Malcolm X, JFK, and The Manchurian Candidate. Fantastic list. Malcolm X, one of my favorite movies of all time, but I view it more as a biography rather than a political thriller, but I know what you mean. Listen, it's one of my top 10 favorite movies of all time. I'm never going to knock anything involving uh, Malcolm X. I will also go The Manchurian Candidate. I mean, remarkable film. I just love Frankenheimer's directing. I love Sinatra's performance, and I agree. It's much better than the remake, although it did have the star power of Denzel and Meryl Streep. So Manchurian Candidate is where I strut things off. I would also completely agree with you on JFK. In many ways, it set the template in terms of a political thriller. It's smart. It's involving. It's intriguing. It's dense. It's got a lot going for it from the brilliant mind of Oliver Stone. So those two are in. I'm also going to go with Argo. That's right. Argo, fuck yourself. Alan Arkin, so great in that movie. Ben Affleck. You know, it was interesting. Affleck was not nominated for Best Director, so that ended up helping the movie uh, win Best Picture. So he doesn't get nominated. Well, what the hell? We'll give you Best Picture. It is often um, times the way things go. But I do think it's a strong movie in its own right because it not only has the political scene of what's happening in Iran, but also it's a a very funny movie because it's an inside Hollywood take and Arkin, uh, as often as the case, gets a lot of the best lines there. All the President's Men's a great film, but I'm going to unclassify that with the journalism movies. Munich, I did think about. I do find it a little bit dry. 
Uh, 13 days I mentioned previously, I think. I, I definitely mentioned, I believe, in terms of talking about uh, political movies or presidents involving them. So you know what? For the fourth slot, I will go with The Insider. Again, I don't know if it's necessarily a political thriller, uh, but it's a great movie. And I just love Al Pacino and Russell Crowe. Both their performances, Michael Mann, showing what a whistleblower is all about. Jeffrey Wigand, great look at television as well. So those are my four. Manchurian Candidate, JFK, Argo, and The Insider. I feel like The Insider is a bit of a stretch, but again... This is our Mount Rushmore political thrillers. Simon suggested it. I don't know why he suggested it. I didn't really like the topic, to be honest with you, now that I do it. What the hell, though? I'm open to suggestions always. Um, <laughs> Mark will text me and tell me exactly what movies he was hoping for, but I think our lists are good, Joe. I think we basically hit the list of ones. If you think political thriller, I will give a shout-out to The Ides of March. I did really like that George Clooney movie. I know it kind of missed the box of it. I thought it would actually do really well. I remember watching it thinking, oh, this will get a bunch of Oscar nominations. And I, only, I think it got completely shut out. I think it only got nominated for screenplay. And I love that cast. Clooney, Ryan Gosling. Uh, there's a few. Obviously, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Paul Giamatti. I'm like, Ides of March, I think, doesn't get nearly enough love. And I think that is a great political thriller. So I'll also give that an honorable mention. All right. Thank you so much for checking out Cinephile. As always, thanks to Robert Jury. We did not miss a single episode this year. That's a credit to all of you. That's a credit to my man Joe for never taking a week off, always contributing back home right now. I celebrated Christmas with his family. Still is knocking out Cinephile. So a big thank you to Joe. Big thank you to all of you. Next week here in Cinephile, I just got the screener for One Night in Miami. It's in select theaters right now. It is available on Amazon Prime January 15th. I cannot wait to see it. There's been two movies I'm dying to see. Nomadland, which is the favorite to win Best Actor, uh, excuse me, Best Picture, Best Actress, Frances McDormand, and Best Director, Chloe Jaw, and One Night in Miami, which is going to get nominated for Best Picture, I believe Best Director for Regina King, I believe Best Supporting Actor for Leslie Odom Jr. playing Sam Cooke. It's going to be up for uh, a lot of awards, so I cannot wait to see it. I also hope to sneak out to the movies and try to watch News of the World starring Tom Hanks and uh, maybe even that Carrie Mulligan movie as well. It's a great time for movies, so hopefully all of you are enjoying, indulging, stay safe. Thank God this miserable year is almost over. Until then, 2021, I'll see you at the movies. An official message from Medicare. A new law is helping me save more money on prescription drug costs. Maybe you can save too. With Medicare's Extra Help program, my premium is zero and my out-of-pocket costs are low. Who should apply? Single people making less than $23,000 a year or married couples who make less than $31,000 a year. Even if you don't think you qualify, it pays to find out. Go to ssa.gov extrahelp Paid for by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services.